Well, good morning, and once again, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out here. And uh, a few years ago, I used to meet regularly with an elderly Christian gentleman. He's a man who had spent several decades as a pastor before he retired. One time when I arrived to his house, he had bruises all over the side of his face. His arm was in a sling. He had bandages wrapped around his midsection because he had broken several ribs because he had tripped and fallen. He was in his 90s. He was in considerable amount of pain. His doctor had prescribed an extremely powerful painkiller to ease the pain. When he told me which drug was prescribed, I was interested to know if he had taken any of them because this particular painkiller was very popular on the street, illegal street market at that time. It was in the news all the time. And so I wanted to know if he had taken any. So I asked him, have you taken any? What's it like? I kind of half expected a, uh, a, a Christian framed answer, you know, maybe something along the lines of, well, you know, the relief from pain is good, but knowing Christ is better. But this particular elderly gentleman, he was, uh, he was long past the age of image management. He looked at me with complete seriousness, and he said, Brother, it was the most calm, peaceful, and relaxed feeling I have ever experienced in my life. And then he paused for a moment, and then he said, I will never take another one. And he didn't say another word about it, but I knew, I knew what message he was communicating with that. In spite of the physical pain he was experiencing, in spite of whatever else was going on in the outside world to cause anxiety, this one pill had given him something close to perfect mental peace. A state of rest created entirely by deceiving his brain. And he wasn't going to risk joining the millions of Americans who are addicted to painkillers or anxiety medication in order to cope with reality. This is not to say we shouldn't be taking painkillers when we need them. But for this particular man, he recognized what this painkiller did for him, and it, it made him very afraid. Today's sermon comes from Psalm 62, and the title of the sermon is in the form of a question. What are you resting on? I've been told that that may not be proper grammar, and so some of you might be thinking, and you may not be able to... Uh, may not be able to uh, get away from the thought that that's not proper grammar. It, proper, it probably isn't, but I, I can't say it the, the way that's proper. It just doesn't sound right. So what are you resting on is the title. If you keep current with uh, the news, and I know most of you do because I talk to you and I hear you talking, then you know spending a few minutes looking at a section of God's Word dealing with resting in God seems particularly appropriate. Whether it be Supreme Court justices who are unable to differentiate between the genders, 
the price of gas going up every day, sometimes more than once a day, grocery store shelves being bare for the first time in my lifetime. At least that's how I remember it. A war going on in Europe, watching nations line up in opposition to Israel, including nations that should know better. The ability to find rest in God is essential to maintaining any sense of joy or peace of mind. So let's go ahead and jump into God's word, but first let's pray. Father, thank you for giving King David these insights that instruct us on how to conduct our lives even today, 3,000 years after the psalm was written. We feel the overwhelming need for rest, and especially for resting in you, Lord. Please open our eyes to what you would have us learn this morning from your word. Amen. I'm going to begin this morning with a very wide target, providing a little background information on the psalm, and then we'll narrow the scope and get very personal, looking within our own hearts. First, the background. Psalm 62 is one of the 150 psalms in the Old Testament. It's one of the many psalms written by King David. I think we probably all know that. Written a thousand years before Christ, it's one, it's one of the psalms located in the second book of Psalms. Are you all aware Psalms is divided into five books? This is in the second book. Included in book two is Psalms 40 through, 42 through 72. Psalm 62 already comes divided to us in three parts with divisions indicated by the word selah. Nobody knows what the word selah means, but commentators believe that it might indicate where a pause should happen during a song. So that's where we will pause. The first section I've labeled what, the second section how, and the third section why. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 4 in the section I'm referring to as what, or what are we talking about here? You'll notice on the first line of the psalm, on the screen, is taken from the NIV version. The rest of it's from the ESV. I've done this for two reasons. One is because the language flows more naturally, for me at least. And two, which is kind of related to one, I find it easier to memorize that first verse from the NIV when I need to recall it to myself. So let's read. My soul finds rest in God alone. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. We need to define very briefly, perhaps even disappointingly brief, what is meant by the word soul and what is meant by the word rest. The 19th century Scottish minister, 
and author George MacDonald had this interesting comment about the soul. He wrote, you do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. I'll repeat that again. You do not have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. And then in Genesis 35, 18, when describing Jacob's wife, Rachel, as she's delivering their last child with great difficulty, the Bible says, And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni. Now, none of this is to suggest that your body won't be resurrected at a point in the future, but only to suggest that your soul is who you are. It's the eternal you, regardless of the state of your physical body. So we've by no means precisely defined the term soul, but I think I've said enough to make it clear what we're talking about. It's the you that is susceptible to being weighed down or agitated by the discouraging or stressful trials of life. So that's the soul. Now let's look at the word rest. To define the word rest, let me illustrate with an example from my childhood. When I was around eight or nine years old, my family lived in a very remote rural setting in Southern California. If you needed emergency medical attention, an ambulance could probably get to you in about 45 minutes if they didn't get lost along the way. One evening a month, my father would attend a municipal utility meeting because he was a board member. By the time the meeting was over, and since the meeting location was a long ways away from our house, I would already be in bed, although not for a long time. But it was my habit to stay awake, lying in bed, until I heard him arrive home and greet my mother as he came into the house. I would stay awake because I felt a sense of comfort or even relief when my dad was at home, especially at nighttime. It's not that my mother was an incapable sort of woman, unable to protect her children. On the contrary, and just as an aside, my mother's personal record for the most rattlesnakes killed that strayed too close to our home was 15 in one month. She killed 15 rattlesnakes in one month, and I'm positive that's more than most men or women kill in their entire lifetimes. So she, she didn't lack nerve or ability. But there was something about my dad being home that gave me a sense of this rest that we're talking about. Although plenty could go wrong, and plenty did go wrong when we were living way out in the country, I always felt that if my dad was there, he could handle it. And so I could sleep peacefully. I had rest. It was a blessing to have a father who modeled the heavenly father in this regard. It should be the aim of every Christian father to model biblical fatherhood behaviors so their children can at least have a reference point toward understanding God's nature more easily. Unfortunately, our spiritual enemy has appreciated this concept better than we have during the last 50 years, 
and has decimated the role of fatherhood in this country, but I'm getting off topic. Let's go back to the psalm. God will will precisely regulate anything he allows to come our way, although not with the primary aim of maintaining our comfort level where we might consider appropriate. We should never think that finding rest in God means the same thing as finally discovering the key to a stress-free life. If that was the case, what would we make of Jesus' words from Matthew 5.10? Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That certainly doesn't sound stress-free. Or in Matthew 10.17 where Jesus says, Beware of men for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And finally, Peter, in 1 Peter 4.12, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at fiery trials, a fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And besides these verses, we have the entire Old Testament with our favorite, favorite heroes of the faith, who go from one trial to another. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Daniel, just to name a few. So finding rest in God is not the same thing as finally shifting our lives into fifth gear and engaging cruise control for the remainder of our time on earth. But resting in God is knowing there is nothing out of his control happening to you. Nothing he can't get you through. So let's look again at what the psalmist says. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Rock, salvation. By the way, salvation here means deliverer. It doesn't mean your final end state of going to heaven. It means more in a sense of think of the uh, think of the Israelites when they had just left Egypt and they're standing with the Egyptian arm Egyptian army behind them, the Red Sea in front of them. What are they going to do? God delivers them. It's the uh, classic case of deliverance in the Bible. This is the sense of the word salvation here. He's not talking in the New Testament sense. So God is our rock, our salvation, our, our, our fortress. If we accept God at his word, it seems sensible that our souls would find rest in God and God alone. Nothing complicated about that, right? But that's not quite the entire picture Unfortunately, this is not the type of instruction that we can learn once and then continue to apply effortlessly. It's not an academic endeavor. It requires doing and then doing some more, sometimes under increasing levels of difficulty. Us simply saying my soul finds rest in God alone because he's my fortress and rock doesn't conclude the issue. And let me give you two examples of what I mean here. Let's say I'm a passenger in a car that you're driving through a busy city in rush hour traffic. It's taking a long time to get to our destination. At some point along the way, I say, at the next stop sign, turn right, and I'll show you a shortcut to get to your home faster. You get to your house, and the newly revealed shortcut has shaved 20 minutes off your commute. 
This is a lesson you can apply immediately and successfully the next day and forevermore. No more experience required, no practice required to follow the new efficient route. But now let's say I'm the passenger, I'm in the passenger seat or the co-pilot seat of a small private plane flying a couple thousand feet in the air. And I turn to the pilot and say, if you were to suffer a fatal heart attack right now, I'd be in some trouble. I don't know how to land this thing. By the way, this was an actual conversation I had with somebody in this church who was flying the plane. So the pilot explained to me how to land the plane. And then he took the plane down close to the runway, the landing strip, so I could get some experience only in monitoring the gauges critical to landing the plane. I could tell immediately if I were flying the plane, I would not be able to land the plane successfully. It didn't feel right. I wanted to turn the nose down. It didn't feel right to slow the plane down so much. In other words, I would crash the plane if I was flying. It was, this was the type of lesson that required you to live the experience with your hands on the controls, forcing yourself to do something that doesn't intuitively feel correct. Our souls finding rest in God is more like landing a plane than learning a shortcut bypassing rush hour traffic. You have to experience it. And like landing a plane, you also have to experience it in bad weather, at nighttime, and even with malfunctioning instruments. For example, you might lose your job and think to yourself, I'm not going to panic. I'm going to find rest in God and he'll get me through this. And when he does, you pat yourself on the back and feel pretty good that you perfected the entire rest idea. And then you lose your health. Now you discover you're not done learning how to rest in God. You're getting some more practice at a deeper level. And the psalmist doesn't sugarcoat or hide the fact that we're going to find obstacles as we try to rest in God either. Look at verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Notice the psalmist is talking about having an enemy, an enemy who is placing stress on his ability to rest in God. This is real life. On Sunday, we can talk about faith, joy, love, resting in God. But then on Monday, we may encounter people wanting to cause us or our reputations harm. So let's look at some of this particular enemy's tactics in the psalm. Notice this is not the first time they've been up to this type of bad behavior. In verse 3, in essence, it says, how long are you going to keep this up? They are initiating multiple attacks. And to make the matters worse, they're attacking in a situation where the victim is already susceptible to ruin. The fence is already leaning over. What it needs is propping up, not an additional malicious push to topple it to the ground. And they take pleasure in lying, a special kind of lying. On the surface, they seem to be on your side. They're blessing you, but inwardly, 
They're instigating your destruction. So your resting in God now faces a challenge. But the psalm gives us instruction how to deal with trouble. In verses 5 through 9. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rest my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust him, him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So this is what I'm calling the how section of the psalm. How do we rest in God when life gets hard? Look at what he does when the enemy is closing in to destroy him. The psalmist, he reminds himself of the truths that he already proclaimed in the beginning of the psalm. For the same reason that we keep our Bibles close at hand, or better yet, memorize scripture, so that during difficult situations, we can review the truths that speak to our circumstances. He reminds and instructs himself, find rest, O my soul, in God alone. He's talking to himself. And then in verse 8, he adds some new guidance. Trust in him at all times and pour out your heart before him. I think it's impossible for us to find rest in God if we don't pour out our hearts before him. Let's talk about pouring out our hearts. Lisa and I raised three children. One of the attributes of children is while at the dinner table, one of them is going to knock over a glass of milk at least once a week. Two things to notice from spilt milk events. One is the glass is immediately and completely empty. You never go to pick up the glass and find that it still has a quarter of cup of milk in it. There's none left behind. And secondly, the milk spreads far and wide and thin. Everything that was in the glass is visible. Nothing is hidden. Pouring out our hearts means emptying our hearts, not keeping anything back and spreading it out where everything is visible before God and, and before you, all that is troubling you. Remember 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the next time you pray, think of knocking over a glass of milk and watching it spread out over the table. If you want to find rest for your soul, you can't skip over this instruction. We have to find rest in God in every area of our lives. There's no holding back a quarter cup of secrets in our hearts. We have to pour it all out there. Now we move on to the final section, verses 9 through 12, the why section of Psalm 62. But before he answers why, he warns us of some common traps where people look for rest instead of finding it in God alone. So beginning with verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. And the balances they go up. 
They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. The first trap, and I would say the most common trap, or at least the second most common trap, for those who travel in our circles, is believing that we can find rest in people, especially in influential people. If you were to consider a hypothetical scale of influence with those on this side being of low estate and those on this side being of high estate, it almost seems a matter of common sense that we would turn to the powerful and the wealthy to help us achieve a sense of rest. Those who have less than we do are not normally helpful in adding to our sense of comfort or security. The psalmist describes those of low estate as like a breath, meaning they, 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 they not only lack any value for us to turn to in times of trouble, but it's, ob- it's, it's obvious that's the case. Nobody seeks out those who themselves are in a state of need to find rest for their souls. A breath does not have su- su- sufficient substance to provide rest. But it's in describing those of highest state where it gets interesting. They are described as a delusion, not an illusion, which would mean that we think we see rich people where they don't actually exist, but a de- delusion, delusion, meaning we have a certain view or place a certain value on the rich and powerful and that view doesn't match what our actual experience tells us but nonetheless we still maintain our incorrect view that's a delusion so here's what I mean how often do we observe that having money and power frequently destroys a person and the more money a person has the more problems they have the Hollywood set Highly paid professional athletes, popular performers, politicians, they almost always seem to have difficulty with their own personal mental maintenance. But we esteem them as holding a special position. Their opinions on weighty matters unrelated to their occupations matter more than the opinions of others. We recognize this, yet we're still prone to seek rest that is properly only found in God. Instead, we look for it from the emotionally fragile, affluent class. It's delusional. The psalmist warns us, seek God who is described as a solid rock, not in a breath and not in a delusion. Very quickly, three additional traps where you might want to place your rest. Don't place your trust in extortion or robbery, meaning if you have the power to intimidate people with the threat of harm in order to get what you want, or if you're tempted to take what you want, you want by force in order to achieve a sense of rest, or, and this is advice that you'll all want to pay attention to, even if you obtain wealth by legitimate means, do not set your heart on it. Let your soul find rest in God alone. 
verses 11 and 12 give us the why. Starting with verse 11. God has spoken. Twice I have heard this. That power belongs to God. That you, O Lord, that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this means listen up. This is important. There are three qualities of God listed here that show why we can place our trust in him. His power, his steadfast love, and his justice. If God only had one or two of these qualities and lacked the others, finding rest in him wouldn't be possible. And let me show you why. How many times have you been in a public location where parents have a lopsided love-to-power ratio when it comes to influencing their children's behavior? Parents who have plenty of love for their children but no power over them. <coughs> Three-year-olds running the family, running roughshod over their parents as their parents do whatever it takes to keep little Sally in line as long as it doesn't involve pulling rank and insisting on well-mannered behavior. All love, no power, and definitely no rest for anyone, including little Sally. And then for a current real-life example of an overabundance of power without love or justice, just think about the leaders sitting in the Kremlin right now. Invading the Ukraine, disrupting and destroying thousands of lives, all because of all power and no love. Our God is loving, all-powerful, and he is the God of justice. How could we possibly find any rest if we thought those who committed evil acts, who lie, steal, murder, who seem to get away with virtually any crime imaginable as long as they are aligned with the right group, how could we find rest if we weren't assured justice would be carried out eventually by a loving, all-powerful God? It's the intersection of these three qualities, love, power, and justice, that we see on the cross of Christ. If you have any confusion of how Jesus on a cross crucified for our sins represents these qualities, I would invite you to speak with me after church today, and I'll tell you. Over the years, around my house, occasionally, you would find a jigsaw puzzle on a table in various stages of completion. Rarely would anyone spend more than 10 or 20 minutes working on the, fitting the pieces together, but it was always tempting to sit down for a minute or two and contribute to the ongoing progress toward making the puzzle look like the completed picture on the puzzle box. But as the puzzle would get closer to being finished, two interesting phenomena would begin to emerge puzzle progress began moving faster with increased attention on finishing. And the second phenomenon, there was more physical stress on the puzzle 
because toward the end, fitting the pieces together, they would connect on more sides. In the beginning, they would just be connecting on one or two sides. Toward the end, the puzzle piece would be connecting on three or four sides. Moving faster toward the end, more tension on the pieces. Kind of sounds like life today, doesn't it? As mankind moves through time and we get closer to the end, closer to what seems like the stage is being set for Book of Revelation type scenarios, the pace seems to be moving quicker and the stress levels seem to be increasing on all sides. My point in saying this is not to suggest a precise date for the end times, but to point out that the puzzle, the puzzle depicting the pictorial account of mankind is looking more and more complete. It's looking more and more like the picture on the top of the puzzle box, or in our case, the picture prophesied in our Bibles. And the pace to reach the end seems to be accelerating. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, a believer in the Bible, your soul can find rest in knowing the puzzle is being completed carefully and deliberately by God. All the pieces are going into the exact position that they were designed to fit. On one side of the puzzle is the Garden of Eden. Looking across the puzzle, you can see the rise and fall of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, all accurately prophesied centuries ahead of time. But if you have no belief in the all-powerful, loving, and perfectly just creator, then you're only experiencing an increased speed and stress without any idea of the final outcome or even if there is a final outcome. In the situations you find yourself in, the situation God has allowed in your life, is your soul finding rest in God? If not, follow the psalmist's instructions. Remind yourself, he is our rock, our fortress, our deliverer. Trust in him. Pour out your heart before him. There is rest available. It's in knowing our Father can handle anything that comes our way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being in control of all things. We thank you for showing us the picture of human history from the beginning to the end. And we want to find rest in that knowledge. But not only for ourselves, Lord, we want to share that rest with others who don't know you, who are afraid, perhaps even addicted to drugs and alcohol to numb their anxiety. Lord, we ask that you would help us to experience rest and to share rest. In your name we pray. Amen.